Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Clabo, your host, and with me as your co-hosts are Caleb Wells. Hey y'all, how's hey, it going? Y'all. All right. And Wailu. Hey Wai. Howdy. Howdy. Oh, how's it going? There you go. <laughs> we wanted a new intro, right? <laughs> Do they have, they, have, they have cowboys in Australia? Of course, yeah. We've got cows, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we're, uh, we're off to a, a roaring start here, guys. This is going to be a fun one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Our special guest today is Michael Stein. Welcome, Michael. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hey. <laughs> don't get us, uh, uh, I don't know, just, we're just going to, it's Christmas next week. I think we're, we're getting it in Punch a festive drunk. mood. And then New Year's. And so we're ready to party, I think. <laughs> when I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates, and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire. They're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. So... I think for the party, I think we need some hot chocolate. What do you guys think? I, actually, I think that would go uh, great with Christmas and New Year's and this episode. So, Michael, can you tell us about yourself and what hot chocolate is? Yeah, actually, it's a, we, we created this product around Christmas. And it got its name because my brother stood in a Starbucks and said, let's take this, uh, let's name this piece of software hot chocolate because there's uh, no better name lying around and actually hot chocolate is a graphql server for.net which we started i think almost three and a half years ago or three years ago around christmas and actually i thought back then we need two weeks to write it but it took a lot lot longer like everything in life <laughs> and uh, it's all open source so it's a big open source project in the .net ecosystem and it's getting a lot traction um, i would say starting at the beginning of this year and yeah so let's let's start off with maybe those familiar aren't that aren't familiar with what graphql is tell us what what graphql is for the layman yeah graphql is a query language for your api and runtime to execute those queries but uh, so that's a catchphrase that facebook threw out there Actually, it, it was introduced as a new way to uh, interact with your API layer by Facebook. And they created GraphQL in order to improve the data fetching between their mobile applications and their Facebook backend. I don't know if anybody knows or remembers the first applications, the first mobile applications Facebook created. They kind of were not very good, very slow, sluggish, used a lot of data, that was, were the key points. And uh, what Facebook uh, wanted to do there is to expose their business layer 
in a much richer way and also um, reduce the overhead that you have bet between fetching data and interacting with the API layer. And essentially, GraphQL gives you the capabilities to ask for what you want, and you essentially get nothing more. So you get exactly the data you ask for. That's the short line introduction <laughs> of GraphQL. <laughs> you know, actually, I don't use Facebook a lot, but I remember right when their apps first came out, which was a long time ago. And yeah, they did suck, and people were not happy. But hey, we got GraphQL from it, um, which I know why is a big proponent of. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I love it. <laughs> so what have you done with GraphQL? Why? Um, I guess uh, most of the websites I use um, that I've built I've, lately, you know, I've, I've built using GraphQL. I think it's just, um, as Mark was saying, it's just, a, it's just a really different way of doing it instead of using REST. Like REST, you kind of have this thing where like every time you need data, you have to create like an endpoint and you got to go, let's say you need, you need data where it's like you need to get a widget. So you go, okay, I'll create a get widgets, you know, endpoint. And that'll give me all of the data for a widget. And then you're like, well, there's a separate page where you want to get the widgets detail as well. And then you get a, but that needs slightly a different set of data to to that first page. Then you need either two endpoints, or you need to do something where you just grab more data than 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 you necessarily would in in one of the endpoints. And then maybe later on you might have like get widgets with parents or something like that. And then you need like a third endpoint, whereas GraphQL, you essentially just have like one endpoint. Is that right, Michael? And then you just, you essentially craft the, the query, the client essentially crafts the query itself and decides what data it wants. And you can traverse through the um, the tree and, and get lots and lots of all the related data as well. So Yes, uh, essentially, you're, uh, you're right there. The, the very difficult thing with REST endpoints is that you, in many ways, start to generalize. Like you, you don't want to have um, lots of specialized endpoints because that would mean uh, that your backend and your front-end developers uh, have to iterate quite a lot. And there's a lot of friction involved in that because if you have very specialized requests, which are very optimized, which you could do, then the uh, front-end developer essentially has always to go to the backend developer and ask for a special request. And when you then optimize for mobile or for desktop, you might even divert the same request into several versions. And the pity then with that is if you have generalized requests or request structures in REST, you tend to have those cascading requests in your API flows. Like you fetch maybe the user, and then you want, the, in, in Facebook's case, maybe the friends of the user. So you need first the user ID maybe, then pass this user ID to the next uh, request, and then you get a bunch of new data, maybe a lot of data that you even don't need, um, because you need to grab some other IDs to get the next request. And these cascading requests are very bad to parallelize because you always have to wait for the previous request to finish. And that's the whole dilemma that you run into uh, with REST. And that's where yeah, it's, um, GraphQL well, comes in. I wanted to say it's, I really, I should have been using GraphQL four years ago, which we didn't for a project we worked on. But we ranged that same issue where do we end up having 200 API endpoints or do we generalize? And we generalized to a certain extent, but we use dynamics so that it can be a little more dynamic, for lack of a better term. But that brings up its own issues. So 
do you see if someone is going to use GraphQL and .NET, is it a replacement for Web API 2? It can be. It doesn't have to be. There are like examples. Like if you look at GitHub, they have uh, their GraphQL API, but they still have their REST API. I would say it's another choice that you have. And I don't like to exclude certain technologies and say this is the best you have to use that. It, it depends on the use case. Like if you look at GraphQL, for instance, it's very good with data. So it's very good with relational data where you have aggregations that you essentially push back to the backend where we can much better optimize them. But if you look, for instance, at Netflix, they are using GraphQL in their backend, but they're not using it to, for instance, stream their movies because it's, it's not meant for that use case. It's not meant for binary data. So there are lots of use cases where you use different things. And if you look even for like microservice communication, often GraphQL is built over, over other internal services that might communicate with each other. And you also might not want to use GraphQL between them. You might want to use gRPC, or, or you have REST in the backend. Um, so I don't think it's just a replacement, but it's a, it's a new tool in your toolbox, and you should use it where it's uh, appropriate. And, Is there a lot uh, of setup and configuration to get GraphQL to work with your data? No, I would, I would say with hot chocolate, it's even easier than setting up web API in ASP.NET. So people that, I, I don't know who of you saw actually uh, the Channel 9 videos that we did with Cecil. Yeah. You essentially just write your API and we infer the GraphQL schema from that. Or we can do that. There are several ways to specify a GraphQL endpoint. But essentially, you can give us your, your business API and we make it a GraphQL endpoint. And that's actually how Facebook more or less does it. They have their business API. And they have a very thin layer of GraphQL just over it. So they use GraphQL essentially to expose their business API in a rich way. And uh, why do I say rich way? Because GraphQL is very strongly typed and has a lot of type kinds, like GraphQL knows unions, knows um, objects, knows interfaces, scalars. So you have all the things that you actually have in in, in strongly typed backend languages like .NET or Java. And that very nicely aligns and uh, gives you a nice way to expose these APIs. And not in the way like you have with SOAP or with REST, where you essentially all the time have to chop up your nice business API to expose it so people can do serialized requests and then essentially have to build another nice layer around it to get it nice again on the on the client side. So with GraphQL, you have a much better way to expose it. So do you yeah, point it at the, at the API or do you point it at the database? That depends. Actually, Hot Chocolate has uh, integrations with database systems. Um, and uh, for instance, you can give us your database, expose it uh, through Entity Framework, and then we infer from your database also a schema. I wouldn't say that this is necessarily the best way because GraphQL is not like, it's not SQL actually. SQL is a much better way to query your database. So there's also this confusion around, uh, especially in the .NET world, around OData and GraphQL. Does it have overlap? Yes, a little bit, but it has a different mindset in which they were created. 
Like if you look at OData as more like um, an abstraction of your database, I mean, it also has grown. But if you look back at OData, when it was exposed through Atempub, it was essentially a layer for your database so you could query it over your service. It has grown. But GraphQL was, was designed as a, a way to expose your business layer. And uh, you can see that also if you look at the operation they expose. It's, uh, if, if you look at that, you, you see essentially that you can do very nicely CQRS with that, or it has all those concepts of your API layer that you use there. So you can expose your database with it, and we give you plug and play ways to do that. So you can bring us Entity Framework, or you can bring us your raw MongoDB, and we just infer the schema from the, your database. And we are pr also putting more of those database providers in there. Like Neo4j is one thing we are working on, which will ship in January. Elasticsearch is something we are working on. But where, where, where this is very nice is when you mix those things, like mix database with API layers and maybe other data sources. And that's very nice where GraphQL can also help you. Yeah, so I think one of the, I was going to say one of the good things about GraphQL is that like in theory, you could like just implement GraphQL on your own using REST kind of thing. Yeah, um, but the good thing about GraphQL is that it's a, it's, a, it's a convention that I guess anyone who's worked on GraphQL knows. So if, if, you've, if you've worked on a GraphQL project before, you'll know how to use any GraphQL endpoint. You know, you'll be able to, you, you, you understand how the types and all that stuff work. You won't have to understand the, the customized con convention that you might have if, if you had to build your own um, REST API. I guess before we get too far, I just wanted to, because when I was learning GraphQL, one of the things I struggled with was the difference between GraphQL and the difference between things like hot chocolate and, and Apollo and, and things like that. Did you want to explain what the differences was between what GraphQL is and what your product does? So GraphQL is a specification. Uh, if you, so GraphQL is not a product. Like when Facebook put it out there, they essentially put out a document specifying GraphQL. And that's also a good point that you made before. Like if, if you look at GraphQL, if you learned GraphQL, you actually can use GraphQL on any server. Mm. Like if you learned about REST, it doesn't mean you can essentially navigate through each REST API because there is no specification about REST. Yeah. It's not, there's no design document that tells you how to design your request. There's one dissertation actually, mm. which outlines how REST or that actually sums up what techniques are there out there that define REST. But there's no specification document. And that's a major difference with mm. GraphQL. And if you look at Apollo and at Hot Chocolate, essentially both implement the GraphQL specification. Uh, actually, yeah. Apollo is built upon uh, GraphQL.js, which is the reference implementation. And the, uh, Hot Chocolate is built in .NET from the ground up. So we are using different techniques and uh, using a different approach to many things, but essentially it's the implementation of the same specification in .NET. So that's yeah, the and, difference, if you want. And you can, you can mix and match, I'm, I'm guessing. Like you can use a hot chocolate server, but to use an, an Apollo client or a yes. read, uh, because yes. it's yeah, a you, you, specification. So. Yeah, you can do that. And you can even, even, like there's a concept that we have like graph federation or schema stitching where you even can then merge multiple GraphQL schemas. And they could be, they could be a, hot, a hot chocolate server, they could be an Apollo server, and we merge them to one uh, output schema. Uh, 
Yeah. So right. you could mix and match them however you want because they are specified by the GraphQL specification. So they mix and match. That is a very good point. It was hotchocolate.net uh, core, so you can run it on either Linux or Windows servers? Yes, actually, the funny thing around that is when I started on uh, on Hot Chocolate, uh, I wanted to implement it really on .NET Core first. And that's why I bought myself a Mac. I was a Windows user back then, but mm -hmm. I, I, I really wanted uh, not just to preach that we are working on every system. I really wanted to make sure that it, it, it really runs without any issues on these systems. So um, I wrote it on Mac with VS Code, <laughs> which was very painful in the beginning, but <laughs> the environment really got so much better. You really can do now .NET on, on Linux, on Mac OS. And I think when I started with .NET, nobody would believe that it ever goes in that direction, I think. But yes, I would say most deployments of Hot Chocolate are on Linux because people now think in Kubernetes containers, in 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 uh, AWS uh, lambdas and in Azure Functions, um, and they are not thinking anymore in uh, where can I deploy that on IIS? It's it's mostly deployed in the cloud and uh, on Linux systems. So yes, that's cool. You know, yeah, uh, .NET has come a long way, right? <laughs> Yeah, um, it's, it's mm. re really, uh, I like the direction that they are heading. Yeah, me too, definitely. I actually want to go back to something you said earlier, and you kind of said it in passing, was GraphQL working with Entity Framework. So is it, how how integrated is it with Entity Framework and Link and that kind of stuff? So it's uh, very, we built this package hot chocolate data, which essentially integrates with a lot of database uh, drivers, like the native Mongo driver, but also with Entity Framework. And essentially, we started actually with that, with iQueryables. And uh, when you query your system, like if you're doing the way where you want to expose your GraphQL or define your GraphQL with Entity Framework, you can do that. In that way, we are rewriting essentially the GraphQL queries, so each GraphQL query coming in, to one uh, Entity Framework queryable. So essentially, we are rewriting it on top of Prairie by rewriting the GraphQL query in expressions. So it's 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 built for that. So if you want to do entity framework, it's uh, just plug and play. And the nice thing around that is that you can extend upon that. So maybe you start with your entity framework model, but then you have some REST services, and you can just uh, merge these different data sources into one graph. And that's, I think, the power where GraphQL is. Actually, one, I guess, thing I found that with relational database and GraphQL when I was working on it was I kept running into these um, really bad, it was almost like an N plus one problem because when you, you know, when you, the server itself doesn't really know what the query, what, what the kind of query is until it gets it, right? And then when it gets it, it has to go for each node and try to grab each, everything from the database before it, it like, especially if there's like a relationship. So I was, I was finding that it was it was essentially grabbing the parent and then it was grabbing it was making a database call for every single child and then every single children's children kind of thing and then I had to um, start using you probably know about this the the data loader pattern to to ensure that essentially I would I would essentially get all of the database objects all at once um, for my query um, does does hot chocolate offer anything like that to ensure that you don't run into performance problems when you 
my query. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're for first, uh, what is the N plus one problem? Um, if people don't know, it's actually the court also, you have an overfetching problem or an underfetching problem. And actually, when we talk about over and underfetching, it's first on the client side. So the initial problems I said with REST is uh, essentially that we had the N plus one problem on the client side. And with GraphQL, we actually moved that back to the backend. So on the on the between the client and the server, we don't have over or under fetching, so that we essentially fetch too much data because the REST endpoint might just have this response, and I cannot pick the data I really need from it. That's the overfetching problem, and the underfetching problem is these cascading requests, and they are also referred to the n plus one problem. So. When you push that problem to the backend, you essentially end up having the problem on the backend. And that's actually where Facebook brought in something called a data loader. Uh, the data loader is not specific to, data, to GraphQL. That's also important. And if you do it right, you integrate it in your business layer, actually. And GraphQL actually does not really know about that this uh, that you need a data loader there and there. And we also have a data loader, which we script out of the GraphQL stuff. So you can use it in your business, lo uh, business, uh, in your business logic, and you can also use it with REST. You can use it with other uh, things, because actually the data loaders are a tool to optimize data fetching. What does a data loader do? So essentially a data loader, because people have a mis often a misconception about data loaders, because the first thing is what they ask. So I have this entity framework query here. I wrote it. So how can data loader make that faster? It can't. Because the data loader is actually um, for fetching things by ID and deferring the loading. So the data loader, essentially, you can ask the data loader to load a specific entity by ID. And then the data loader does a very uh, nice thing. It just gives you a task that you can await, but it doesn't load it until all the things in your graph essentially enqueue their request to that data loader. And then the data loader uh, fetches all the data in one go from your database and caches it in memory just for the single request. And that uh, essentially let, lets you better batch things to the database and take pressure away from the database. So we support that. We implemented the data loader specification two already that Byron, one of the creators of GraphQL, put out in the summer, I think. So we also abstracted the way you can do batching. You don't have to necessarily use, use data loader. You can also hook up your own batching mechanisms to, to GraphQL. So why is GraphQL so complex with all this batching? Because you have data graphs. And when you essentially request whole graphs of data in one go, because you need all this data, then you run into uh, problems where you might, at the top, load a person that you, somewhere in the bottom of your graph, have to load again. It's a friends of friends of friends problem. Like if you request the yourself and then your friends and your friends of friends, then you might end up pulling the same data over and over again from your database. But with data loaders, you don't do that anymore. So yes, we, and we have a lot of funny names around our product. So hot chocolate is a GraphQL server. Green donut is our data loader. It's as, as I said, uh, separate. And, uh, <laughs> and how does how does no, this all relate to chili cream? Yeah, when we started with <laughs> when we st when we started with these uh, silly names with hot chocolate and hot chocolate 
is actually because we always went to Starbucks with my son. He was then two. And he always just went up to the counter and ordered a hot chocolate. Uh, if we allowed it or not, he just went there and got this hot chocolate. I, I feel like maybe your company was like a cafe before it diversified <laughs> into <laughs> making a graph trail. Um, so is it is it the company is chili cream and then the product chili is cream, yeah. hot chocolate? Okay. Yeah, the company is chili cream and hot chocolate is the graph by Sarah. And then we have strawberry shake, which is our client API. So the the other side of the fetching. If you're if yeah, you're like writing blazer <laughs> Yeah, if you're writing blazer applications, then you're using strawberry shake, for instance. Oh, okay. With real cool. strawberries. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So one thing I, I noticed in watching some of your videos is that you have multiple ways of going about querying the data with GraphQL inside of .NET and C Sharp, similar to how you would do it with Web API. So you guys have set up both attributes in Fluent API and schema first with GraphQL. Which, which of those do you find you use most often and how, how does that benefit the, the whole flow with GraphQL? Yeah, it's, it depends on the use case. First off, uh, the way that uh, Facebook thinks is code first. And code first is, but code first annotation-based, they call them. So essentially, they have their, their, their business API, and from that, they infer the graph. Uh, so the first experiments when they, they, they experimented with GraphQL was actually just a way to call the API methods and fields. So that's why, why they started with this code first. But when they came out and released all this stuff, um, the people in JavaScript jumped for the SDL representation, which is what we call schema first. And that's essentially the data definition language in which you can describe your GraphQL endpoint. And then there is another thing that they call actually code first, which is these fluent APIs where you essentially describe, uh, like with the data definition language, your API, but with a strong code, like with C-sharp code. So these are three approaches, and we are essentially bringing now a fourth approach, which is schema first, and then we use source generators to make it compile into C-sharp. And that gives you the best of all of it. So my personal approach is always code first with with annotations, so annotation-based, which I think is the uh, nicest way to express your uh, express your API because you have your business layer. It's just C sharp code, and while writing a lot of type type structures around it, you have already defined them. You already defined what a string is, and that's. Uh, where also the, all this nullable stuff from Microsoft comes in, because with uh, these nullable in, uh, annotations that they uh, integrated in .NET, we essentially can uh, now fully describe our business uh, layers. Like we can describe this is uh, if this string is nullable uh, or if this string is non-nullable, and that's very important with GraphQL because they have the reverse concept. So in in GraphQL essentially every type is nullable, except you attribute it with exclamation mark, and that means it's non-nullable. And why is this important? Because the consumer of your API then can totally get rid of all the null checks for things where you promised it that it's never been null. And GraphQL is very strong in this. It's not like if you have these like rest with Swagger. With Swagger, your, your server might say that something is not nullable, but your server violates it. 
And this cannot happen with GraphQL because the execution engine would then error the request. So if a, if a server developer makes something wrong in the server, returns null for a non-nullable field, actually the whole re uh, or the, the request partition uh, fails and uh, the client always can consume consistent data. And that's very important. So if you combine your business API with these nullable annotations and just infer from that the GraphQL schema, it's, it's a very powerful way to drive those APIs and takes away all the friction uh, that you even have with web APIs, where you always have to compromise, uh, craft details and stuff like that. And you don't have to do that then. But uh, there are also people that like SDL first. And that's often when you essentially start on a green field and uh, people want to talk about how the API is structured. So they, uh, the front-end developers and the back-end developers uh, start writing one of these SDL documents, then use that to, as their interface and uh, program from that their APIs. So that's another approach. I personally don't like it, but I get why people like it. Uh, and since we are open source and very community-driven, we integrated all those flows and keep them all at the same feature level. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it, the only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick, and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it, grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and you use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at adventuresin.net.com slash Raygun. I think that that's great, right? You, you're letting people choose their preference, which if you can do that, that's awesome. I did find it interesting with your your attributes, your annotations. You have ones like uh, use DB context and use filtering and use sorting as an actual annotation on your query. And then, so I'm guessing that the query does that by default because you've added those annotations. Yeah, and that's, that's a special annotation, actually. It's, okay. you know, we call them uh, descriptor attributes. Like you can create your own. So you, you create, can create your own and uh, essentially extend the GraphQL server beyond its capabilities. So what these use are, are actually middlewares. And uh, that's also why the order of these use, middle, uh, use attributes, well, why the order is important. Because you annotate them on a method, and by that, you essentially create a middleware pipeline on, on top of this field. And that lets you intercept and add more processing logic and let you create things like filtering, like all those hot chocolate data APIs and integrations into other database systems done with a public core APIs, so everybody can do that. And there are all, already a lot of people trying that. It's awesome. So hot chocolate, you said, is 
open source. Yes. And Chili Cream is a company that supports hot chocolate. So are you guys making your income through like consulting? Or? Several things. So what the aim is, is really to keep everything open source. There are a, a couple, some things that we are working on, which are not open source. So essentially you can buy a subscription for that. But most of it, I would say 90% of it is fully open source. You can contribute to it. And uh, we have a very open community, which actually gathers on a Slack channel that we uh, provided. And it now has, I think, over 1,500 people chatting with each other every day. So there's a big community around that. And all of this is very community-driven. And we do usually, we do regular community stand-ups where people actually can chime in, put something on the agenda, talk themselves there, and uh, even, yeah, fight for a future. <laughs> So I think that that is part why hot chocolate became so successful in the end. And then we have the uh, company. And we are essentially earning our money from consultant, uh, from workshops, and also from some cloud services that we built around that. Essentially, there is something like a schema registry uh, that keeps track of all your schemas in the company and uh, things that enterprise companies need. And the last thing is that uh, people also sponsor. There's not a lot in sponsoring, but there, there's also some sponsoring. So, yes. One thing I noticed when looking at hot chocolate, and for people who have used any framework, you've probably seen this when you're running .NET and uh, a console, and you've got a verbose uh, logging enabled, you actually see the SQL queries in any framework is creating. It looks like you're doing the same thing with GraphQL. Are you piggybacking off of any framework or are you actually building the SQL uh, yourself in Hot Chocolate? De depends on which driver you use. If you use the Mongo driver, we are doing it ourselves. When you plug in Entity Framework, we are using Entity Framework. But you can also always... Uh, so essentially, uh, you can also lock out the, the query that we produce. But in, in the case of Entity Framework, we are not producing SQL. We are producing expression trees. And you could lock them out. And we're doing that in some demos to show like how GraphQL is translated into expression trees and expression trees then by Entity Framework translated into proper SQL. But if you, for instance, do the Momo database integration with Hot Chocolate, you can see the Bison trees that we are producing. We are also letting you lock them out. So Mongo essentially has a query language that looks like a big JSON document. So you can also output that. Yeah, we, uh, we recently did an episode and we talked a lot about expression trees and those are beasts by themselves. So the fact that you guys are, are building your own on the fly within hot chocolate, that's, that's uh, impressive. Yeah, there's a lot around this. Essentially, when we started with Hot Chocolate, it was very simple. Now we are talking about execution engines, execution plans that are compiled and stuff like that. Uh, because we are we're, with schema stitching, and there's a lot coming now in January around that, we, we also have to aggregate between da data sources. Like you have multiple data sources uh, that you use to create your graph. And you have overlaps between those data sources. So uh, with uh, Hot Chocolate 11.1, we really take advantage of that with our new execution plans that we introduced actually in the December release, uh, in the November release. 
And that makes that optimizes your request to fetch from the least data sources possible. So essentially, if you fetch a user ID and uh, then uh, maybe some related data, and we can get all this, this data from one data source, we optimize to just fetch from there. Even though you produce code that in the first way would prefer uh, maybe entity framework, we fetch it from the REST service because we can see that the same data can be gathered there. And we have to anyway fetch something from the REST service. So it's getting more and more uh, in the direction that the databases uh, are doing, but as a kind of an aggregator over multiple data sources. So it's um, it started very simple three years ago, but uh, we are learning as we go things that seemed impossible when we started with it and where we did use reflection. We don't use reflection in runtime anymore for yeah, over one and a half years. We dropped all the <laughs> reflection code because it, it was uh, simply too slow. And now everything is compiled. Everything are built up expression trees and things are compiled properly. So it's getting a lot faster. It's, and it's amazing what you can learn to do when you've been in it for a while or you don't have any other choice. Like we have to get this faster. We have to make this better. How do we do it, right? So that's great. Yeah, that's actually right. Because when you keep doing things, then you're building these little blocks and then other things become easier. And then the problems become smaller. And I like, I really like that to investing in this stuff more and more and seeing things become possible that seem to be impossible. And I mean, we are... Now, one a very fast GraphQL server. Um, we wrote in our last release block, like we're on a, on a machine with multiple processors. We are faster than any Node GraphQL server. We're the fastest GraphQL server on .NET. And even on other platforms, we are much faster than them now because we compile everything. We don't compute. We don't walk the trees anymore doing doing processing on the on the queries. We essentially compile them. So the first query might be slower than on other servers, but the second query is a lot faster. And that even very optimized GraphQL server like PostGraphi, which is can do less than most GraphQL servers, but is very optimized on performance, is uh, slower than hot chocolate. So we are putting a lot in these things. Are there, any, are there ever any um, changes to the GraphQL specification? Like that you that your that hot chocolate will have to adapt, I guess. Yeah, actually, the thing that we aim to do is when something hits draft in the GraphQL spec, we implement it. So we are also one of the first GraphQL server who is who implement or who released the feature of defer, which is coming out, I think, with the next GraphQL specification. They are now like the. Reference implementation now has released, I think, version 15, where they have this as preview. So there's a lot of traction around GraphQL. It's, uh, there's a lot of movement. There are new features coming, like defer, stream, and live. These are new features that essentially let you fetch very complex data structures in one go and then defer parts of the responses. Like you can essentially annotate in your query that you want all the data, but that these uh, data, that maybe you want the current user and the friends, but actually you want the user first and only after you receive the, the user, you want to fetch the friends. 
Um, and uh, this is a thing that Facebook internally uses for years because when they fetch their graph, essentially, you get the news feeds first and then only it, uh, you, the, the comments will trickle in. And this is done through one request and the other data is just streamed down. So these are very big features that where you have to put a lot in to get them into your server. So I think you mentioned new things coming probably in January. And I, th I think that's probably around or maybe even a little bit before this show will actually get released. So these new things might be out there already, but what is coming? So there, uh, there are a few things, like there is our new schema stitching engine, which I talked about, uh, that now prioritizes better when to fetch which data so that you can aggregate your microservices much better in a much more efficient way. Then our one of the main features people are waiting and pushing us about is Strawberry Shake. And this is our approach to bring a real, real approach on interacting with GraphQL servers to the .NET world. Until now, we have GraphQL servers, like we have GraphQL.net or we have Hot Chocolate. And uh, there are some smaller GraphQL implementations, uh, also open source, like Luke Entities GraphQL or something like that. So from the GraphQL servers perspective, there, uh, there is plenty in .NET, but there is not really a client like Relay in JavaScript or Apollo. And there are other things, like if you look in, in, in the JavaScript world, we have much more variety. So with Strawberry Shake, we have the first things, and we took a lot of the features that Relay have and that Apollo have and, and put them into one package. And that's coming uh, pretty much in January. And uh, what we are also working on, another big thing is, is really proper Azure Functions integration. And if we, if we think about those serverless approaches also, GraphQL is not ideal for that because we have, we have query and uh, mutation, which are uh, stateless things. But we also have things like uh, subscription, which is stateful, which is very difficult with, uh, to do with, with Azure Functions or Lambda. And what we are doing is essentially introducing a new subscription protocol that works over SignalR and uses the Azure SignalR hub to essentially offload the stateful connections to the hub and be able to scale that with Azure Functions. So that are a couple of the things that are coming in January and which we are at the moment working on. That's a lot. <laughs> a whole lot. Yeah. Are you updating to .NET 5 and using record types or are we going to wait we for already .NET 6? It's already, in, it's already in that. It was the November release. We are using records, and if, you, if you're using them with hot chocolate, they feel very natural. So if you're using them, for instance, with MVC, and you're putting attributes on them, you always have the problem that you cannot use the one-line syntax, where you put attributes essentially on the parameters. And that's also the reason, because essentially when you compile it, the records, the attributes sit on the construct, constructor parameters. Uh, so in, in MVC, you always have to write them in the long version. But with Hot Chocolate, you can choose however you want that. So you can uh, write them in one line, or you can use the long version. And we will de detect whatever version you're using. So it's already yeah quite some time in. We started when they came out, because I really love the way what they are doing with records. We just implemented it. <laughs> nice. So Strawberry Shake, you're saying that's the that's the hot chocolate client, I guess, the GraphQL client, is that right? Yes. 
so is that just written in in JavaScript then, similar to Apollo client or? No, no, it's uh, it's intended for Blazor and Xamarin. Oh, cool. And it uses now in the in the current preview. Uh, so in the the version that is out that people are using at the moment, it's it's uh, using at the moment hooks into MS Build to compile automatically. But now in our preview builds that we are having now, and uh, we hope to ship at the end of December, the first new previews, we're using source generators. And that enabled so much more capabilities that you that you also were able to do uh, with JavaScript. They have these literals where you essentially can write GraphQL right in your JavaScript code, and it gets compiled to uh, a query around that. You have proper types then. And that we can mm. do now with C Sharp. So it's, uh, I think, oh, I, Expect to see a lot more libraries picking up as source generators soon and driving .NET in a complete different direction, like like you see with Spring and other frameworks that have such source generators for a longer time. Yeah, right. Cool. Is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to let our uh, listeners know about? No, I think we spoke about a lot here. <laughs> mm, I mean, I, I, yeah. I essentially yeah. could talk about it all uh, <laughs> all night long. But <laughs> the the best the, the best way is to essentially dig in, try it out, and try out hot chocolate. We have a great uh, tutorial, which is called the GraphQL Workshop, which we have under the GitHub organization Chili Queen. And that's an easy way to get started with Hot Chocolate and Entity Framework and try out your way around GraphQL. A lot of .NET developers are a bit hesitant to use that, uh, to use GraphQL. And that often is with a misunderstanding on what the difference is to all data and what GraphQL can do for you. But I would just uh, suggest people try it out and get your feet wet. I found that really changed the way I developed once I started using GraphQL. Like it used to be that I would kept I kept moving from the front end to the back end, front end to the back end. But I found that with graph with my solutions now, I would essentially I would set up kind of like the the GraphQL server and and, and my API first, and then I'd spend almost all my time on the front end because I wouldn't have to worry about crafting my 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 back end to to make sure that I'm I'm feeding the data through. Yeah, it lets you it lets you more more work detached. Like you can um, yeah. work on the one source of truth that you want to expose, and then you just pick from yeah. it. Yeah. So when I when I'm writing my API, I don't really even think about the, the the clients. I'm just thinking about what kind of data I want to expose. And when I'm writing my clients side, I'm I'm really just thinking about what data I want to consume. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really good. So. So should people go to the. Uh... Chili Cream website to start or the GitHub or where should they go? Yeah, the Chili Cream uh, website is a good point. From there, you can uh, get to our Slack channel or to GitHub. We have some nice uh, startup tutorials there. And yes, it's a good starting point, the website. Awesome. All right. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. I think I'm going to move us on to picks. That was a good discussion. I think that was really just great stuff that we got there. I know a lot more about GraphQL and hot chocolate and strawberry shakes, and I'm hungry now. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> All right. So, uh, why do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. So it was me and my wife's anniversary uh, the other day. Oh, and congratulations! 
Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so we have a tradition of just taking the day off and just spending the day together, just basically because otherwise we'll just never spend any time together because we've got kids. <laughs> so we this year we decided to go to a uh, like a sensory deprivation tank experience. So it, it's essentially like you're in this tank full of really salty water that allow you to, I guess, float and there's no light and there's no sound and you kind of just lie there for an hour i guess and you know he, i guess we were talking about meditation and stuff like that and i thought right I thought, look i wouldn't say it's, it's it's everyone's cup of tea but but i think everyone should at least try it like i i found it pretty cool you know just lying there for I was, so it's probably I was like, ask how like body works. temperature what's that it's like body temperature water and it's about yeah probably about 30 degrees I don't know, uh, at 90 Fahrenheit or something. Something. Right. Yeah, it's, it's it's nice and warm. You're not, you're not going to get cold in there. You're, but you're, you're naked. You're you, you don't you don't you don't see anything. You don't feel anything. You can't hear anything, kind of thing. So, yeah, you, you just you're just lying there, and then you kind of you can you can meditate. You can, I guess, I kind Is of fell asleep for a little while. But <laughs> the idea of this tanks are actually to re-experience the like your time in the womb of your mother. Where you are. <laughs> yeah, that's the idea yeah, from these um, things. I'm not sure if I, I experienced that, but they're trying to. I think I think that's a good experience. Like, and yeah. then afterwards, because you do it alone, like it was an anniversary thing, but we, you, you do it separately. But then afterwards, you meet up in the in the little lounge room area they have, and then you have a you know, cup of tea together and stuff like, and you all kind of relax. So. <laughs> So, yeah, no, it's good. That's I, I, cool. I would recommend everyone to give it a try. I wouldn't say it's something that you do regularly, but <laughs> so if you fall asleep, you don't drown. You can't drown. Yeah, yeah. So you, in fact, you don't want to even dip your head in the water because the water is so salty. Oh, so your head's yeah, out of the water. I yeah, there's so much salt you can't you can't sink into it. I mean, it's, yeah, it's like it, the the Dead Sea. Have you, I don't know if you guys have been there, but yeah, I yeah. There, but it's supposed, supposed to be really yeah. salty like that. So or Great Salt Lake in Utah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. All right. Kayla, cool. what do you got for a pick? Mine is not nearly as cool as, as wise. Mine is, is more uh, practical. It's actually a storage solution, right? And I think I've talked about Backblaze before. Is uh, That's how I save all my network stuff. You know, I got like six terabytes of Backblaze. This one is more, you know, easily accessible storage, similar to OneDrive or Dropbox or whatever. But for me, it's been, it's been fairly cheap. I actually got a deal for a terabyte. And you're right, you can access it anywhere you have internet connection. But one of the cool things about it is their desktop app, when you install it, you can actually set up WebDAV or a network connection directly into your account and sell your files, right? At, right as like a mapped drive, which you don't see a whole lot of uh, storage providers doing. So it's Kufer. Uh, hopefully I'm saying that correctly. But um, yeah. yeah, I use that for stuff that I need easy access to, you know, when I'm other, yeah, otherwise yeah. from the house. Yeah, I know a lot of those storage providers, you know, there's a third party usually ends up writing some sort of a web dev tool or something so you can mount a network drive to it and go around that. But yeah, that's cool. Yeah. All right. So uh, my pick this week, did you guys ever play the game Mist? Yes. yes. They missed. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's been about 25 years since that came out. Long time ago, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They just released a VR version of it. No. Oh. Yeah. But the same that's perfect for you. It's pretty much the same game. It's a little bit tweaked, but you're actually inside the, the environment that Mist was at. And so it really goes with my new, the Quest 2 VR headset that I just got recently. 
And so they, they released it for Quest 2. They're also going to be coming out with a version of it for Steam and even an updated just regular PC version of it as well. So my pick this week is the game Mist. So you can either you know check out the old version or the, the new VR version. It's, that's one more reason for me to get the, the Quest. Although I'm going to have to figure out how to convince my wife. Say <laughs> <laughs> so the well, birthday present for us. Yeah, check out some some demo walkthroughs and things like that on YouTube and see what it's like. Because I guess because remember when you played with Mist, you had to walk from one place and then right. flip the switch and then go walk back and see if something changed. Well, you can either actually do that in virtual reality with the game, or they have this this type of uh, like teleport type mode in it so you can say i don't want to walk just put me over here <laughs> well, how, well, how would you walk on the vr mode like would you would you actually walk like pretend to walk well you can use the controllers to like click areas on the ground in front of you to say move to here move to here move to here that okay. kind of stuff but then there's also you know with the quest vr it actually is room aware so you can do some limited amount of of moving around it within the space yeah. So, lots but of you would only be able to walk like a couple of feet, right? You wouldn't be able to walk right down the street or anything. So, right, I just don't know how right. a platformer would would work on yeah on VR. So. I have seen things for VR where you're actually standing on a little platform that's like slick, and so yeah, it can, yeah. can pick up your feet moving like you would would be walking. But yeah, those are are pretty uh, intensive and expensive yeah. because it has to it has to hold you in place while your feet are moving and sliding right. and stuff like that. So Yeah, right. Yeah. All right, Michael, got something that you want to pick and let our listeners know about? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a new Tesla owner. And that's uh, at the oh. moment, this, it, fresh this week on Monday, I got, got my new Model 3. And I'm really psyched about that. And uh, I'm jealous. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm very jealous. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's so nice. Uh, so the, the initial decision was I didn't want any combustion engine anymore. So we picked the Tesla. And since then, I'm uh, going, I think, shopping every day. And my wife is quite <laughs> happy because I, yeah, okay. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. Yeah, no problem. How, how, how far are you away from the Autobahn? Are you, can, you, can you drive there? And oh, you yes, can go as yes, far yes, as you yes. want. I went over to my mother because at the moment I'm, I'm, I'm in Zurich. And Switzerland is very strict with their speed limits. <laughs> but but I'm born in Germany, so we like to go fast. So I went over to the German Autobahn uh, on, uh, on Sunday. So I got it on Friday, yes. Nice. Uh, and uh, we we, were, we went over there over the weekend. And yeah, I could get it to 260. So it's nice. Whoa. Oh, my God. Wow. Whoa. Kilometers. 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 Still very far. Still. Still. Whoa. But but the nicest thing with an electric car is really it's really that zero to one hundred kilometers or or zero to sixty miles. It's it's completely pushing you in your your seat. It's it's amazing. Two hundred kilometers would be one hundred and twenty. So like I said, whoa, about one hundred and fifty. I've done that once. Uh, and that was crazy. So yeah, the, the the Porsches are still faster. So and they have better duration on the autobahn. So you still have to move aside, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, the it fact gets that you, you have to move over. You're going 150. <laughs> you have to move over. Tells you something. Yeah, that's yeah. Germany. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
I used to have best. a Nissan 300ZX and it was limited, I think, at about 145. And I tried it once in the middle of the night on a downhill freeway. And, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just fun. But the best thing, and that's from a software engineer perspective, is that my car updates regularly. Like if you if you have those traditional cars, it, it doesn't matter which brand. You essentially drive out and your car is already outdated. Nobody will update any software on your car. And, and, and Tesla, it's really, I got already two updates. <laughs> and, and, and that's something. And I really love that uh, approach that your car gets better over time, even though you already paid for it. They are nice. You know, a friend I play, I play softball with has a 3 and a Model X. And yeah. he let me, you know, check them out or whatever. So I was definitely jealous and said, now I'm jealous of you. <laughs> well you know you know when when we all strike it rich off of this podcast we can all get our own teslas right? it's coming in 2021 right <laughs> fingers crossed yeah. <laughs> uh, well right, michael guys. um yeah, people want to get in touch with you. What's the best yeah. way to do it? So my messages on Twitter are open, so you can just message me on Twitter, which uh, I'm very active on, or you just open an issue or write me an email okay. if you. And that's want. that's at Michael Stein in on Twitter. On Twitter, it's at Michael underline Stein. Okay. And Michael is M I C H E L. Yeah. S T A I B. So exactly. Yep. A little different than some other spellings of Michael. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, they're, they're, they're uh, different no a. ways. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, no, it's... There's we'll put it in a. the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, I, I posted in there. Yeah. Okay, great. Great. And if our listeners have feedback for the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can get me on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. Thanks, and Michael. I am at Caleb Wells Co. Right, that's new. So, yeah. That's new? Yeah. No, that's thank new. you, Michael. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is great. Great. All right. We'll catch everybody on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.